Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another version of my wonderful show that we call Sin's Chat Corner. Um, I have to apologize. I was having a bit of a technical difficulty here, so we're about five minutes behind on our show time today. But I just want to say thanks to everyone and always very grateful that you opted to listen into the show. This evening we have a very special show in that my guest is Joe Denenson. For those of you who have never heard of him, he is an actual electronic violinist as well as a master of all crafts musically. Uh, we're going to basically delve into all of his fields of expertise and talk a little bit, of course, about his, I believe it's his fifth CD release. He's just a major talent, and I personally am very in awe of that. So I want to start off tonight's show with the basics, which is all of the company business. First of all, I want to again remind everyone that I, of course, am chairing a celebrity fundraising event that is going to be entitled Leah's Leaps for Lumps, and this, of course, to benefit breast cancer research. In part, it is being done to benefit my dear friend, uh, Leah Simone, who happens to be a mob wife on the Chicago show. And her mother is actually currently struggling through breast cancer treatment herself, which is one of the motivating factors as to why I opted to come on board to do this. Again, the event is scheduled for October 20th from 7 to 11 p.m. in Milwaukee. At the present time, of course, I'm still seeking out some uh, vendors, and of course, always we need volunteers. Uh, there will be a mini fashion show there, so I might utilize maybe one or two more models. And of course, in addition, we're going to be having a whole raffle table, so we're always welcome to having donations. So certainly, if you know of anyone that wishes to contribute to this worthy cause or perhaps help in any manner, shape, or form, you need to get a hold of me directly to do so. As you can see here, since Chad Corner is my show page, you can leave me a message here. I have a regular Facebook page, which is Cindy, last name M-I-C-H. Also, my show page is on Facebook, since Chad Corner. My Twitter handle is at S-A-N-D-B-1-1-1. And, of course, I can be reached at regular email, which is C-I-N-4251 at gmail.com. And, of course, as always, I appreciate all of your help, and just passing along the word would be greatly appreciated. Now, I want to mention, for those of you who might happen to be in the Chicago area or who happen to be listening as far as this weekend, my dear friend Nora, same series as Leah, of course, Mob Wife Chicago, is going to be bartending at a breast cancer fundraising event. Apparently, this is going to be located at Tavern on LaGrange, if I'm not mistaken. I will be there, of course, in support of this, and certainly I'm hoping to see you there. The information for the set, this event can be found on her Facebook page, actually. So if you go onto Facebook and you type in her name, which is Nora, last name S-C-H-W-E-I-H-S, right on the very front of her Facebook page, she'll be able to tell you what times, how to get there, the whole nine yards, so you have that information readily available to you. And I also wanted to mention to all of my friends who are currently in uh, Milwaukee, if you happen to be here based for this evening, if you're happening to uh, try to find something new out of the ordinary to do, and it's a nice night out tonight uh, for great live music. I have just a spot for you this evening. I have three very dear friends of mine, all of which who are musicians and actually are part of the music scene here. Bill White is in a group called Audacious White Noise. Matthew Tyner, of course, is with the Milwaukee Carpetbaggers. And a very talented uh, new musician I came across not so long ago by the name of Ethan Keller. They're all very magnificent musicians. They're going to be playing down at a venue this evening called 106 Seabooth. Apparently the music's supposed to start off at 8 o'clock, and I just know it's going to be an absolutely beautiful night. From what I can tell, it doesn't look like we're going to have any rain this evening, so I think we're going to tune off well. 
So definitely, if you don't have any plans this evening, looking for something to do, hightail it down there. I, of course, personally will be down there myself. Um, since we're running a little behind today, I guess we'll just go through my one topic of the day. Um, and as we all know, that if any of you happen to listen to my show on any kind of regular basis, you must know that I ride a little bit on the eccentric side. So most of the topics that I tend to pick are ones that I usually have a strong opinion on, or at least I want to bitch about one or the other. Our uh, main topic for today is, I just came wind of this story, I believe it was yesterday. It actually involves a uh, federal judge located in Boston. He very recently had made a ruling as it relates to an inmate that's curly, the inmate's currently incarcerated and serving a life in prison sentence for murder. It's the first thing I should press upon you. Turns out that this individual happens to be a transgender person. Now, of course, by the way, I will tell you that I take no issue with that whatsoever, although everyone else might have their own personal opinion. It's irrelevant to me whether this person is transgender, straight, or otherwise. Uh, the ruling states that he will be allowed a same, excuse me, let me get this right, a sex reassignment surgery to be done. So that's the ruling, that he will allow him to do this. Apparently this individual is transgender, so of course... Sometimes they do things such as reassignment surgery. Apparently, there is an argument that the surgery may or may not be medical necessity. Hence, because he's an inmate, of course, you see that the taxpayers of that particular state are ultimately going to pay the price tag as it relates to him getting this uh, procedure done. Now, this subject brings a few things to my mind and in my opinion. I mean, first of all, I get that the purpose of a reassignment surgery is apparently to assist with gender identity disorder, which is obviously a, a... I'm struggling because I don't know the actual term for it. I guess you would say it's not necessarily a mental disorder. It's not necessarily a physical disorder. Apparently what it does is it brings about duress and impairments to a person on both a social and a personal level. There is typically an identity that we all have that's established from birth. In this particular case, some individuals can't identify with that. And then they continue to struggle with it throughout their life. And then for some reason, some have to alter themselves physically and hormonally to adjust. Now, I see according to the newspaper that apparently the inmate has, up to this point, changed his name, obviously from being male to a female name, has lived physically and dressed physically as a woman, and has now began to utilize hormone treatments. Now, sad to say, this person, unfortunately, has already tried to castrate himself and has also apparently tried to attempt suicide twice in prison as complications of this said disorder. Now, I can see a definitive need for this person to get ongoing mental treatment because clearly he suffers from a condition that would require that kind of ongoing care. I mean, and further to step it up, I mean, if you're in jail for life for murder, um, I want to think that perhaps you have a mental problem to begin with. That should kind of be a no-brainer. Um, I can clearly see that this would be a struggle, as obviously, you know, there's the society psyche that says, you know, transgender individuals or anyone that's, you know, same-sex relationships, that just said, that whole vibe, that whole thing, everybody can be so very highly critical about as it relates to that. I can see that, you know, again, because of this condition, perhaps his behavior might be considered irrational. But my problem comes in in, in this, basically, which is why would you provide such a surgery at the expense of other taxpayers for one who has already opted and made a decision whether he is mentally ill or not? The reality of the situation is he has actually ended someone else's life. He's murdered an individual. This inmate chose to take a human life, 
And then, you know, he did not get life in prison for accidentally killing, you know, I mean, you go out and you murder a cat or you run somebody over on accident or whatever the case may be. There is an intentional malice as it relates to that. In this particular regard, it's difficult for me to overlook because clearly, you know, he's been found guilty of a murder. I mean, I just don't understand why the state would allow him to receive this surgery, deem it necessary, and then have the taxpayers pay for it because you're basically helping a murderer in essence. I mean, I could see if he was a hardworking, decent individual with good intentions, who's actually contributing to society in a good manner, I can certainly understand that. I mean, basically his contribution is he slaughtered someone and then took that person away from their own friends, their own family, and their own existence. I believe that even if there are suitable grounds for him to actually need the surgery and have it be a necessity, then the judge himself should order that those funds be found from an alternative source. I mean, it's already the burden of the taxpayer in part to pay for his incarceration, and now you want us to pay, or in essence, those taxpayers, to pay for his medical care as well as for his most recent accomplished in life, which is murder. I mean, basically, that's all he's done so far, and then they throw him into a prison cell. You know, you're already paying for the incarceration, like I said. Now you're going to go ahead and you're going to take care of his medical necessity. And again, if you were bleeding, if this is life-threatening, and even if it is something that needs to be addressed, you know, the funds shouldn't fall back upon the individuals that are already housing him. So please don't mistake my intentions here. I mean, I am the first one to say I have a very good heart, and I don't wish ill will on anyone. But in this particular regard, I find this just this ruling is both unfair and unreasonable as it relates to the individuals that live there. Now, perhaps it's possible maybe even that other treatments could be utilized in the interim. Perhaps this individual might end up getting parole of some sort and then go back into society. But, again, this wouldn't be the first or last time that somebody would say, shut the hell up, Cindy, you don't know what you're talking about. Again, I mean, my stance on this is clear. Uh, the gentleman obviously needs help. The gentleman obviously has some sort of a mental issue that's going on, and I'm a big advocate for mental health care in this country. But the reality is is that, you know, you can't expect someone to house an inmate and pay for his, you know, everything, basically, before you know what you're going to pay to have, you know, prisoners get privileges. You know, it's called a prison for a reason. You're getting punished for a reason. Therefore, medical necessity medical necessity care, I think, should probably just get better defined. And again, it has nothing to do with his gender or what preference he has sexually and everything to do with the logistics as it relates to paying for the procedure itself and whose responsibility it is. So hopefully they'll be able to come to some sort of fruition on this because otherwise I can manage to see some sort of boycotting or individuals having a fit about this particular thing. And again, like I said, I'm not judge and jury person myself, but what I can tell you is, like I said, I have a very strong opinion as it relates to individuals being asked to take on financial burdens when they already have accrued or having to take care of other individual things. So again, like I said, my chat lines are always open just in case you didn't know that. So at any point in time where you want to call in and give your opinion on something, you can do that. Certainly leave me a message on um, any one of the other particular subjects that I had mentioned before. Now, since we don't have Joe on the line as of yet, I guess we can start to cover my second topic, which fortunately for both you and me tends to be a little bit lighter today, and hopefully one that I'm I'm relatively certain that almost everyone has heard in the news recently. If any of you are even remotely interested in what goes on on the Internet or the television, I'm certain that you would have heard about this incident which involved um, the royalty, which is Prince Harry, obviously. As I understand it, based on what I read, uh, he opted to take a little rest and relaxation in, of all places, Las Vegas. 
Now, from what I hear, supposedly, there are pictures of the royal himself participating in strip billiards and that some woman apparently had been spending some time partying with him. Oh, hold that thought because we have Joe on the line. So, without further ado, let's get to Joe Denninson and find out all about his musical world. Hi. Good evening, Joe. Hey, Cindy, how are you? Hi, I'm so excited to have you on the line. (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited to be on your show. Thanks for having me. Oh, I have to tell you, I uh, uh, some of my closest friends are musicians, and it is so fascinating to me that absolutely none of them do what you do, are, um, and they're all credited in their own right, but none of the accomplishments that you've had. This is, this is a major win for me today. <laughs> I'm so excited. And oh, I was a little worried you. because I thought you would have a very heavy accent, but you don't. So that's Why good. would I have a heavy accent? Well, you are of Russian descent, correct? Yes, but I... I came over when I was four years old, and when you come that young, oh. you sort of lose your accent. Most of the people I know. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I have tons of questions for you, so I'm very excited to keep going on and asking you all sorts of things about yourself, if you don't mind. Not um, at all. First of all, I have I tons of answers. Uh, oh, I <laughs> <Sorry>. hope so. <laughs> because they're pretty good questions. Um, from what I can see here, you're just a natural-born prodigy, so it would seem. And, of course, I obviously find it interesting that you are of Russian descent, because clearly I don't know of anyone of that vernacular. I'm wondering if you could give us a peek into your uh, beginning origins as an entertainer, kind of start us from the beginning to where we are now, kind of sort of. Um, wow. Well, um, I think, you know, I, I come from a musical family. Uh, my parents are both classical musicians. So... I sort of I was hearing music from day one, but it was all classical music. They were, they were like strictly straight as an arrow classical musicians. My father was a violin player, my mother's a pianist, and uh, they're still professional musicians. So I I think you know my earliest childhood memory was conducting. I liked to listen to records and conduct, you know, pretend I I was conducting an orchestra. And somehow when when we came over to the states, when they brought me over, that that whole conductor. Aspiration. I was I was a little kid. I was four years old. That whole thing was became perverted and <laughs> corrupted. <laughs> and uh, okay, I, I went to uh, I went to public school and I started. You know, I really wanted to fit in. And you know, growing up in in public school in the United States in in, Ohio, in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, I, you know, most people weren't really hip to classical music, and I sort of felt like an outcast a little bit. But I I started playing violin when I was six years old. Uh, and as a secondary instrument, I played the piano, but I ended up sticking with the violin. Um, so my, my father was my first violin teacher, but I was strictly just studying classical violin, all the, you know, the, the okay. scales and etudes and all the pieces you learn when you start out on violin. So, and, and the Suzuki method and the Russian method. So uh, that was my thing, but I uh, also was listening to the radio. This was in the early 80s. Gives you an idea how old I am, but um, you know, and, and, at the, okay. <laughs> and at the time, you know, uh, I was I started watching a lot of MTV and listening to to what was on the radio back in the day, and I remember checking. I remember really digging like Van Halen's 1984, and of course Michael Jackson and Twisted Sister, and Yes, and you know, all the stuff that was around in the early 80s. It was like you know pop oh, culture. Oh wow! Okay. So sure. You know, uh, my, there was only classical music played in my house, and I, w- the reason actually uh, we came over to the United States, uh, well, I mean, we're Jewish, and relig- there was a lot of religious persecution in the Soviet Union. Um, and my, what happened was my father 
it was sort of a, a do-or-die situation. He had to win an orchestra job to support his family. So we were all crammed, crammed into my uh, uncle's apartment in New York, and my father was practicing violin in, in one room. This was a one-bedroom apartment, and my father was practicing violin for his auditions in the kitchen while my uncle, who was a viola player, was practicing in the bathroom, you know. And it was seven of us crammed in this apartment. Um, and my my dad ended up winning a job with Cleveland Orchestra, which is one of the greatest orchestras in the United States, if not the world. So that's how I ended, I ended up growing up in Cleveland, the home of rock and roll, you know. Um, so anyway, so uh, moving right along, basically, um, I really I felt that, you know, rock and roll music and, and popular music was just... A, had such power to communicate with people. I felt that people connected with it, and I, you know, instantly took to this music. And uh, right when I was, I think, uh, around 12 years old, I started dabbling in writing my own songs. Um, and I, I really enjoyed singing as well. I was always um, singing, you know, in school and doing a lot of stuff like that. So I. I looked. I wanted to form a band, and I was 13, and no one around me played bass. Everyone played guitar. I, st- I still, all this time, practiced the violin, but I didn't really conceive of how a violin can fit into a rock band. So I took up bass because I figured four strings, four strings on the bass, four strings on the violin. How hard could it be, <laughs> you know? Sure. Um, so uh, yeah, so the first instrument I learned to really rock out on and improvise on was the electric bass, um, and then. When I was 15, I, I taught myself guitar, and I started playing guitar as well. Um, but I didn't really figure that you can do all this stuff on the violin and improvise and play. You know, anything you can do on an electric guitar, you can do on a violin. Um, oh. So basically, uh, I, you know, when I was 16, uh, I was playing violin in uh, some high school talent show or something, and there was this local Cleveland... Uh, a uh, celebrity named Michael Stanley. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, the Michael Stanley, Stanley band. Paul Stanley, but not Michael. Okay. <laughs> Paul Stanley from Cleveland. No, Michael Stanley yeah. was like he was like the Bob Seger. He was to Cleveland what Bob Seger is to Detroit, I guess. And oh. he was like the the local working class rock star that could fill twenty thousand seaters. But in Cleveland, he had some minor hits in the early eighties. Uh, but outside of the Cleveland area, not a lot of people knew him. But he had a huge following there. So, um, long story, he had a long career, but uh, long story short, um, his daughters went to my high school and he heard me play, so he invited me to sit in with his band um, at one of their concerts, and um, I was like, wait a minute, on the violin? I've never played rock and roll on the violin before, (laughs) you know? So, uh, but I already sort of knew the language from studying it on the guitar and the bass, and uh, it was just a matter of transferring it to my fingers when playing the violin, and it was a huge kind of... uh, turning point for me. It was that concert that was a big, you know, life-changing moment, and around the same time, my dad bought me a recording of Stefan Grappelli, the great uh, jazz violinist from the 30s. Um, and I also checked out Jean-Luc Ponty for the first time, who is a great fusion player, who, who everybody knows. Mm-hmm. Um, he played with Zappa and had a long, like, 40-year career. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I be- began to be aware of the possibilities you know, and I I was playing bass in my high school jazz band, and playing rock guitar with with uh, bands at night, and uh, also playing in orchestra and going to violin lessons every week. So I was sort of leading a parallel life at the time. Um, okay. So basically, when, you know, when it was time to go to college, I uh, 
decided to major in jazz violin because I knew I didn't want to be a classical violinist in an orchestra. That wasn't really my calling. My passion was, you know, rock was pulling at my heartstrings, uh, rock and jazz. So I, I decided to major in jazz violin at Indiana University, okay. and that's and that's where I sort of, uh, around that time, I, I bought my first electric violin and uh, started writing more like fusion, rock fusion kind of music, um, and I got really into Frank Zappa and Mahavishnu Orchestra and stuff like that, and, and a lot of progressive rock. So, um, okay. and then about you know I moved to New York. I tried to put a band together, and that was it. For okay. the most part, got it. Um, Which we'll get along to in all these other ones here, because <laughs> yeah. I'm delving in. I'm be delving <laughs> Sorry in if I'm rambling. Part of your life here. No, that's yeah. okay. That's fine, actually. I mean, would it be a fair assertion to say that music has pretty much been your first and only passion, or did you ever say to yourself, you know what, I don't want to be this musician guy. I want to go paint, or I want to go write, or I want to do... Do you know what I mean? I went through a phase where I was... I think when I was like 12 or 13, where I was reading a lot of Stephen King, and I wanted to be a novelist and write horror books, you know. I was sort of fascinated with being a writer for a brief period of time. Oh. I always okay. I, I always thought I had a pretty good flow as a writer and uh, enjoyed it, but music really took over. Um, but I have okay. recently written a book. It was It's an instruction book for electric violinists. And uh, mm-hmm. so it sort of came full circle. I got to uh, exactly. work that a little bit, and I hopefully you know, I'll write another book sometime in the future. I, I hope so. so. We hope so. It's a good thing you didn't go for the writing thing. I'd be personally disappointed. <laughs> I kind of like you as a musician much better. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask. Now, I've noticed that some of your work has been showcased, so the listeners know there's places such as MTV, CMT, History Channel, just to name a few. Um, has it ever been really a surreal experience for you, or you've kind of ever listened to it and thought, that's me? That's really me? I can't believe that's me? I mean, is it is it a surreal experience for you? Um, I don't know about surreal, but it's 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 kind of a rush when you, when you hear something you did on TV or on the radio, and... Uh, okay. You know, it's like it's sure. like Christmas. You know, um, oh, it, it feels really good. And it's some the, the weirdest thing that ever happened to me. I'll tell you. My wife and I went to a spa in Colorado, and uh, it, we did this weird thing where they wrap you up in mud, like you know, like a human burrito oh, yeah. or something. You know, and then the, yep. you know the, the woman left the room and uh, turned down the lights and started playing relaxing music. And uh, what comes on? It was some recording I did with Richie Blackmore five years before that and I can't relax because I'm listening to every note I'm I'm playing and I'm like oh man this is (laughs) this is torture you know oh no (laughs) it was the most random thing in the world so oh my uh, gosh look at that must be nice to be so popular that you have your music being played in these places. That's actually a testament to you, to tell you the truth. Do you remember um, the very first piece that was showcased on television? Um, I don't remember the first, but I remember uh, I was watching Man vs. Food, and they, and they opened an episode and played a little bit of one of our songs. Pleasure pain, and I, I was so. like, I jumped back and like, whoa! <laughs> I, know, I know that too. <laughs> I imagine so. Delight, surprise, wow! Uh, yeah, it's, okay. it's 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 funny. Um, I don't know. Uh, maybe it is a bit okay. surreal. I never thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. But I, I always I always enjoy when the little surprises like that, and you know. Definitely, I was and I was surprised. <laughs> 
Well, certainly, and I wanted to mention that to the audience, too, because I was not um, familiar with Joe whatsoever until um, your publicist and I had chatted, and I got an opportunity to just listen to some music, and uh, I was pleasantly surprised, not to diss on your talent whatsoever, but when you were working with a random musician you never heard before, um, I just was amazed. I'm really very amazed, um, and I will be elaborating on that with our audience sometime later in this interview. Um, I wanted to touch on this. Your musical style has been described as a mixture of jazz and rock with with a gypsy sort of influence, and um, I'm sure you've probably heard this before, that some even refer to you as a modern-day Jimi Hendrix. Maybe you could describe to the listeners what style... You, out of all the styles of music that you play, which one is your is your first or favorite, I guess you should, I, I would say? And moreover, do you have any interest in performing crossover-type music? Do you know what I mean by that? Um, I think I know what, I, what you mean, but tell me what you mean. Okay. <laughs> Meaning, like, if your forte happens to be in jazz or if your forte happens to be with, you know, classical music, would you entertain the possibility of doing a crossover? Hence, for instance, a country singer starts doing pop or rock music. Okay. So, to, well, to answer your first question, I really love everything. I mean, it's all just music to me. Duke Ellington okay. once said there's only two kinds of music, good music and bad music. Uh, so, I, I mean, I play with a lot of really cool groups in addition to Stratospherius. Um, and speaking of crossover, I for two years now I've been playing in a group called Sweet Plantain String Quartet. And this, this is yeah. a group of classically trained musicians as a traditional string quartet, but they mix hip-hop, jazz, Latin styles, and blues into the the string quartet setting. So that's like, you know, if that ain't crossover, I don't know what it is. It's it's a really fun okay. band. Um, and I okay. I play, I also have a jazz record I put out in 2010, which is very different from the rock fusion uh, kind of music that you hear Stratospheria is doing. Um, right. So, yeah, crossover is my life. <laughs> Everything I do is crossing a lot of different boundaries. But I think it, it, to, in my heart and soul, I'm still a rock musician. That's, that's what I love to do the most. Um, okay. You know, I just love the intensity and the the energy and the theatric That's what I theatric got. nature of it. You know, I keep you know, and, and the way I know that for sure is that I I have my I have a master's degree in music. I studied uh, really advanced theory. I studied classical music for six years in school, and I um, I've explored a lot of things. But I still keep coming back to the music I loved as a kid. So what does that okay. say? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That speaks volumes, doesn't it? Literally, that answers the question yeah. right there. Okay. Next, we have um, Digital Nation, as I understand it, is your established record label. Um, I wanted to ask you if this is a solo creation, and um, what do you see as the potential future of your label? It's not my label. It's This is uh, a label run by Steve Vai, a famous rock guitar player. Oh, a, I apologize. A big hero of mine. I was not given the correct information. Oh. Okay. Uh, D's, D-Zone Entertainment is the indie label I sort of created to put my own stuff on, uh, to put out my music okay. um, that I've had okay. for many years. And, you know, But the new okay. album is was released by Digital Nation. Gotcha. Okay. Well, now that you've corrected me, this would be the first correction in an interview ever. Wow. And it was the Joe. <laughs> I'm usually very, very good with all my facts. Okay. Don't worry about it. Trust well, me. You, you have no idea. Some of the people I've talked to, never mind. I'm not naming names. but. <laughs> Thank you. No, I'm, I'm keeping my head above water. So this is a way thing. above, way, okay. way above water. Thank you, dear. I wanted to talk uh, for a moment, actually, about the Sweet Plantain String Quartet that we were um, that you had actually brought up just a few moments ago. 
Could you just kind of fill me in on your, your decision? What made you decide to participate and what you enjoy most about your association with this musical group? Well, they're all really great friends of mine. I've known these guys in the New York freelance scene for like 10 years or you know, as long as I've been living in the area. They're all great musicians, and I, I was just a big fan of, the, of this band, uh, this quartet, before I joined, before I was asked to join, I was always just hyping them to people because I thought what they were doing was groundbreaking and unique. And okay. it was, you know, the world needed to hear this group. Uh, I was as excited about them as I as I was about my band. So even though I wasn't a member. but And then one of the, they had a falling out with one of the violinists and they asked me to join. My first reaction was that, you know, I wasn't sure what kind of a time commitment it would be, but I thought I'd give it a shot. And it was... Uh, it's just been such a thrill working with those guys, and I'm really excited about all the prospects that group has. Oh, wonderful! And it's also sorry, sorry. It's also fun no, no. to just it's also fun to just be a member of the band, not be the leader of the band. Just show up and contribute, maybe write some stuff, but you know, just have a good time and play, and not worry about all the okay. business headaches that are involved. You know, which I which is what I've been doing with with my with Stratospherius for many years. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, I have both um, projects going strong, so. Uh, this is a good yeah. thing. And if anyone wishes to see you with this particular quartet, are you, um, that's based in New York as well, so they would have to see you at a venue in New York? Would I understand um, that to be well, correct? We're, uh, this group travels all over the world. They played, before oh. I joined, they played in Russia and all over Europe and uh, Turks and Caicos. Okay. We did a three-week tour in Alaska last year. Um, wow. So, you know, if you go to sweetplantain.com, there's all the updates, and there's a Facebook page for them as well. Um, of course. And on my website, I, I I always keep updated with that group in Stratospherius and all the other projects I, and wherever I'm playing with whoever. And that's joedenenzone.com. So yeah, I try to stay out of trouble. <laughs> I try to stay out of trouble, or in trouble, <laughs> however you want to look at it. Kudos to your wife, let me just say that much, because you might just be this passing figure that kind of comes and goes. Well, um, she's very busy as well. It gets really crazy, you know. She's in the New York Philharmonic. Oh, really? She's a musician, too, so you have you oh, have two wow. people two people running around like crazy, and um, we go through oh, periods goodness. where, like, two ships passing in the night. <laughs> and oh, my we have goodness a, gracious. And we have a son, and you, so it's... We're I was going to mention that, that I know that you have a child. <laughs> so you're juggling the child thing. And so, of course, that makes it difficult. So now you obviously, I assume you're the one who serenades her, and then she's the one who plays to you. Or how does that work when you have the two musicians in the house? You know, it, it works that we we never really work together in a musical context. Rarely, rarely. Um, by the time we actually get home, we just want to chill out in front of the TV. The last thing <laughs> we want to do is, is play any music to <laughs> each other. I imagine so. Oh, my goodness gracious. I can't even... Wow. Okay. Um, Now, I want to talk about something that I found was unique about you. Um, As I understand it from what I I have here, you're responsible for co-writing, directing, and performing in Spider-Dance. Now, I envision this to be somewhat of a, basically, an Italian Cirque du Soleil of sorts is what I gathered out of it. Maybe you could explain to the listeners the, the premise behind Spider Dance and what brought you to having such an active role with it. Well, one of the first gigs, I, when I first came to New York in 1997, I was hungry. I was just looking for every, everything I could get my hands on just to start working as a musician. And I came across this group called Idiolari di Piazza, which was 
co-founded and led by uh, Alessandra Belloni, who is a percussionist from Sicily who, you know, she sings and, and just real... Uh, she, what she does is uh, study the, his, the mystical history of the Tarantella, and she's really big in the world music scene. So I, I came into this gig because their violinist was leaving, and that group had been around for 20 years at that point already, um, and I... Through them, I got, I got to play with such amazing musicians like Steve Gorn, the uh, Bansuri mm-hmm. flutist, uh, Jamie Haddad, who, who plays percussion with Paul Simon, Glenn Velez, and I sort of got introduced to a lot of major people in the world music scene, which I wasn't even my goal. You know, I, ne- I sort of fell into that world a little bit, and I worked with that group for 13 years, um, but I, I got too busy. I'm not really working with, with Alessandra you know, on a full-time basis anymore. But she developed this show. Her dream was to do like the Italian river dance and sort of celebrate wow. the history of the Tarantella, but mix it with electronic music and, um, you know, do a big stage production. And she, we, we had been developing it for many, for I guess like five years. We did different incarnations of the show off Broadway and okay. theaters all over New York. So uh, at, at this point, I think she's rewriting the show and she plans to. Um, Put you know, put it on again, maybe in a year or two. Um, gotcha. But I, I was the musical director, and I helped uh, arrange a lot of the music, along with uh, John La Barbera, who's her partner and another great composer and musician, guitar player. Oh, that sounds so wonderful. That would be something I would definitely want to attend. It sounds beautiful, and especially if it's in the premise of Italy. Oh my gosh, how amazing is that? Um, I wanted to touch on this because uh, I'm certain a lot of the audience members don't know this. Um, well, first of all, I've always had a heightened respect for musicians, and especially those who extend their talents out as an educational mentor, if you will. Now, I know that you you serve in that capacity as well, meaning that you have taught before, obviously, and I know that you founded what's called the Grand Canyon School of Rock. Can you maybe explain what the mission of your school is, and do you find teaching to be fully rewarding to you? Absolutely. It's one of my favorite things to do, hands down. Um, I mean, particularly what I love to teach is, uh, you know, things I'm really interested in, like improvisation, creativity, uh, you know, rocking out and uh, performing. And uh, basically, with, with the Grand Canyon School of Rock, I, I was pl- another gig I fell into when I moved into New York was um, the Grand Canyon Music Festival, which is run by a harmonica player named Robert Bonfilio. Him and his wife have run the festival now for 29 years. I just actually got back from there last week, and um, I started playing with his band. And, and with his band, it's it is a crossover band. We mix classical music with blues and jazz, um, and the instrumentation is violin, harmonica, and guitar. Uh, and sometimes okay. he has bass. So anyway, I, I used to come there and just do a few concerts and go home. But then at one point, I started toying with this idea of starting a, a School of Rock program there. It's a one-week program where we take local high school kids who live on the south rim of the Grand Canyon and put together a rock band. And it doesn't matter if they've never played an instrument in their life. Um, we we make it happen. <laughs> we build it from the ground oh, up. Wow. So, so in, in, like, in a few short days, the metamorphosis, metamorphosis is, and the progress is amazing. Um, so we've had it going on for six years. And uh, it's it's really rewarding. You feel like you're giving the kids a life experience because they're even though they're living in this beautiful one of the most beautiful places on earth, they're really isolated, and they don't have a lot of resources there. You know, there's not no music schools or really teachers. 
So sure. and there's a really small school there um, for general studies. So yeah, that's that's a really fun thing. And also, uh, I've been teaching for two years now at Mark Woods Rock Orchestra Camp, and before that, I was teaching at the Mark O'Connor Fiddle Camp or String Camp, he calls it. Um, and and the, the Rock Orchestra Camp is cool because it's a bunch of kids like like me that are all sort of misfits in their in their school. You know, they're they play the violin or the cello, but they love rock and roll and metal and you know and it's sure, like a bunch of, a bunch of it's like a bunch of ugly ducklings coming together and you know finding each other and you know f- figuring out where they belong it's it's kind of cool to see and they're really excited to, you know they they treat you like a rock star um they look at all the faculty they're like oh my god that's what I want to do so oh it's you're an inspiration Joe and i you know i had like i remember i had certain teachers that were mentors to me that you know they don't even realize it, but things they taught me growing up stick stay with me. Like every time, every note I play, they're they're in there somewhere. So it's fun when you mm-hmm. feel like you could do that for somebody else, you know. Certainly, and I wanted that. I actually wanted to ask that question too. Here in the state where I'm located in Wisconsin, of course, my sister has a whole organization where we raise funds and have events to get money together for art programs and music programs in the school. In your areas, mm-hmm. or I should say, in the state you're located in, do you find that? That same thing is a struggle for you there as far as there's just not enough musical offerings due to budget constraints there in your area as well? Well, I, um, I'm i not really involved in the fundraising end of it, but uh, sure. it's always a struggle. Uh, some places more than others. Um, sure. I know like in, in the Grand Canyon Music Festival, it's, they're involved with the Arizona Commission for the Arts, and mm-hmm. Arizona's a very conservative state, and um, they they tend to really... Uh, be, you know, not too generous with uh, giving to the arts. <laughs> I think in the New York area it's a little better. In the New Jersey area, it's a lot sure. of uh, arts funding going on, but it's still, especially in today's political climate, it's, it's always difficult to convince people why the arts are important and why they should be a priority. Um, yes, exactly. I would agree. But I respect so people. people that mm-hmm. I, I never got into Go that end of it. I, uh, but I respect people who whose job it is to get that funding, and, and uh, it's it's a very tough, thankless job, and you have to be very persistent. Definitely so, and it's unfortunate. It really is unfortunate. We struggle with that quite a bit here, actually. So people support the arts. I can't say it enough. Support your musicians. Support your arts. Period. Um, on a lighter note. I see that on the jazzier side of things here, um, I know that you had created a CD with a band called Exuber Exuberance. Did I say well, that right? The name of the name of the CD is Exuberance. That's right. And CD. Okay. And the group—that's actually you, the jazz CD I was talking about. Okay. Earlier. Yes, and we are on the right. We're on the right. We're on the right page, you and I. Okay. Um, explain to me a little bit about um, how much involvement you had in that. Meaning, I'm assuming that you've worked on every song, and and where some of the inspirations came for that product. Well, you know, I started out recording all this rock fusion electric violin stuff and became sort of known uh, for that. But I always loved playing swing jazz. And, uh, you know, like I said, I loved stuff by Rapelli and Django Reinhardt and that kind of old hot club of France swing fiddle kind of sound. And also Mark O'Connor, who's another great hero of mine, had a, a really great jazz trio that also played that kind of style. So I'm like, you know, I I, I want to make a demo, you know, showing that side of me. So it started out as just a four-song demo. And then I said to myself, I don't want to be another guy playing standards because that's just done so so much and so well. I want to maybe play 
some of my favorite pop tunes, rock tunes, and give it that kind of treatment, you know, and try to keep the integrity.